0: Hi, everyone. I'm Anya Parampil, and this is Red Lines. My guest today is Leo Flores. He's the Latin America campaign coordinator for the anti-war organization Code Pink. Leo, welcome to Red Lines.
1: Thanks for having me here, Anya.
0: In July, you wrote a piece for the gray zone and Code Pink exploring candidate Joe Biden's vision for Venezuela, determining it is, quote, virtually indistinguishable from Trump's How do you believe the fact that biden lost florida and that some latinos in the state particularly cubans and venezuelans voted overwhelmingly for president trump do you think that will impact biden's venezuela policy at all
1: i think i it could right so i think that's like the one ray of hope for venezuela that's come out of these elections is the fact that you know, you have a president who's won or a candidate who's won the presidency without taking Florida. I think it's the first time in a long time that that's happened. And what that means is that, you know, the, the White House isn't going to necessarily be beholden to the South Florida interest to the, you know, Cuban American and Venezuelan American vote and uh, political financing as much as it has been in the past. So, you know. You're right. There is absolutely no difference so far in at least the rhetoric between the Biden and Trump administrations when it comes to Venezuela. In fact, in South Florida, as opposed to everywhere else in the country where Biden was, you know, distancing himself from Trump and presenting himself as, you know, an alternative to Trump as someone totally opposite from Trump, who, someone who could heal the nation. In South Florida, he was basically trying to out-Trump Trump. And we saw this in, uh, for example, in some billboards that, you know, superimposed uh been the, the iconic image of Chavez's eyes over the face of Trump, and we saw this in you know Biden's campaign events, where he basically he said he was going to keep the pressure on Venezuela, he was going to build an international coalition, he was going to keep you know putting sanctions on the country, and he was going to isolate the country diplomatically, which is exactly step for step what the Trump administration has done since 2017. Uh, but now that you know Florida is no longer in play, it really does present an opportunity for the Democrats to break away from this kind of narrative that they tied themselves to. Uh, But what's yet to be seen is what will actually happen and what they will actually do. Uh, Because of course, Venezuela remains kind of a very hot button issue. Uh, And he doesn't, despite having just won the elections, I don't think Biden is going to want to be seen as being pro-socialist in any way, shape or form. So while I'm generally very skeptical about you know, things improving between the U.S. and Venezuela, I think that there is a very small opportunity for something to better to happen.
0: The writing is clearly on the wall for the Democrats. Donna Shalala, a House Democrat from Florida's Miami-Dade County, lost her seat to a Republican, Maria Elvira Salazar. She's the daughter of Cuban exiles and someone who'd previously worked as an anchor for Spanish language network Telemundo. Do you think Shalala's performance, along with Biden's, will convince Democrats to give up on courting this right-wing exile base?
1: I think it's possible, because it, it wasn't just Shalala that lost, it was also Debbie McCarcel Powell, who who has a, like a, a neighboring district, and she also lost. Um, and so these were two seats that the Dem- Democrats had picked up in 2018. And I know, I mean, Code Pink also works on Cuba, and I know that on issues of Cuba, lots of people, uh, progressive and, progressives in Congress were kind of wary of doing anything related to Cuba uh, in this past year, 2020, because of those two seats. So now that those two seats are gone, I hope we're going to see more action by the by the, Congressi- the by the Congressional Progressive Caucus, the CPC, regarding Cuba. And on Venezuela, it certainly opens up an opportunity because if anything was going to happen on Venezuela, those two congresswomen would have put a stop to it, for sure. So, yeah, I mean, I think this is part of, you know, that, that small... Uh, door, window, rather, of opportunity that, that we were talking about in the first question.
0: In your analysis of the Trump and Biden campaigns, you found two main differences on Venezuela policy. The first is regarding temporary protected status, or TPS, for Venezuelan immigrants. What exactly is Biden's position there?
1: Well, I mean, I think in that case, it was just a straight up, you know, attempt to Gardner, Venezuelan votes, particularly in South Florida. Biden says, you know, the the one one of the main differences between his policy and Trump's policy was that he was going to offer TPS to any Venezuelans who could come here. Um, But that said, you know, I don't know if you saw a a really interesting exit poll that Fox News published on the night of the election that said that something like 72 percent of the people polled, favor a path towards citizenship for people uh, who who are undocumented. I mean, they call them illegal immigrants, but you know undocumented people. So again, here we have the American people having a clear position in terms of wanting a, you know you know a more humane immigration policy. And what Trump is offering is basically crumbs, which is TPS and TPS for Venezuelans. I think at one campaign stop in late October, he also talked about TPS for Haitians, which is great. I think all of these countries that had TPS should have it restored. Uh, but clearly, it was kind of a political ploy to gain votes and not some sort of you know, long uh, position based on, uh, on anything other than this attempt to get votes. Because really, if he really cared at all about Venezuelans, then his first step in office would be to lift the sanctions that the Trump administration has imposed that has decimated the Venezuelan economy. According to Venezuelan economist Pascualina Curcio, this cost Venezuela $198 billion. In addition to that, there has been a cost of human lives. CIPR, the Center for Economic and Policy Research, says the sanctions cost 40,000 lives in the first year alone. And then Alfred de Zayas, a former UN Special Rapporteur on unilateral coercive measures, said that you know, the sanctions might have cost as many as 100,000 lives. So, you know, TPS for Venezuelans is basically... It's almost like an empty gesture because we're talking about not even not that many people would even be eligible for it. Uh, and, And really, you know, if he cared about Venezuelans, his policy would change dramatically.
0: Perhaps now he'll also see that that would just be a big boon for the Republican Party in Florida, not really gaining any any base for the Democratic Party there. The second difference between Trump and Biden, which you analyzed, is Biden's rejection of Trump's border wall. So it seems as though Biden's major rifts with Trump on Venezuela have to do with domestic U.S. immigration policy. To that point you just made regarding sanctions, do we have any reason to believe Biden would roll back some of these Trump-era coercive measures lobbied by the U.S. government, levied by the U.S. government, Or would he walk back Trump's recognition of opposition leader Juan Guaido as president?
1: Sanctions, we have to keep in mind that they actually started during the Obama administration. So in March 2015, Obama called Venezuela an unusual and extraordinary threat to the national security of the United States. This is basically a de facto sanction because it's a clear sign to corporations, to multinational corporations in particular, that Venezuela is in the U.S. crosshairs. And so that was a sign for not just corporations, but investors to start pulling out of Venezuela. And then, you know, that has immediate economic effects. After that, the the Obama administration began sanctioning various uh, Venezuelan government officials. They claim without any sort of proof that these sanctions only affect those officials. But what we've seen historically is that that's not true at all. But that said, you know, I think lots of progressives who voted for Biden kind of, uh, you know, because they lacked any better realistic options talk about how they're going to try to pull Biden to the left, right, or push him to the left. This might be the one, one, one of those things where there's a slight possibility of that. And I say that because already this year in Congress, there were two really important sanctions-related bills. One of them was an amendment, amendment by Tulsi Gabbard to the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, which calls for a humanitarian impact studies every time sanctions are applied. The other one was a series of a uh, set of legislation called COSA, Congressional Oversight Over Sanctions, uh, put forward by Ilhan Omar, and this, you know, basically calls for, among other things, having Congress have to authorize sanctions, you know, every six months or every year. I, I forgot what the exact time period was, but basically, it would make Congress have to reauthorize every sanction put in place. And these are, you know, important steps because they are recognition of the fact that sanctions are warfare; that sanctions kill. And so, I, I don't think Biden himself or the people who who are necessarily being you know, talked about to to fill Latin America related positions in the White House, which by the way includes a guy named um, uh, I'm totally flanking on his name, Firestein. Uh, I think it's Mark Michael Fires- Mark Firestein. Michael, yeah, Michael
0: or Mark? We can edit it's,
1: this. I I think it's Mark Firestein. Yes. Who what? Who used to be at the head of uh, this public relations firms called C L S Strategies? And Ben Norton wrote a great piece in the Gray Zone about how CLS Strategies was engaged in fake news and trying to undermine democracy in Bolivia, Venezuela, and Mexico. So this, if that's the kind of character that's going to fill the Biden White House, then, you know, I, I don't foresee much movement on sanctions. But I do think, you know, there is kind of a groundswell, particularly of grassroots, you know, understanding of what sanctions do. And so there is a possibility that some of the worst sanctions, for example, the diesel sanction that Trump has just applied in the last month or so, I think that might be lifted and diesel is, of course, critical because it affects everything from transportation to agriculture. So really, it's a, a kind of the, this was the last gasp attempt by the Trump administration to kind of starve Venezuela well into submission. I think we might see a slight pullback on those sanctions, uh, particularly because I think Biden is going to be slightly isolated in Latin America because there's so many right wing governments that cozy it up to Trump. And now he doesn't have that kind of base of support that Trump did. And he has no real natural allies in Latin America at the moment, because, of course, Argentina is left country now. Mexico has AMLO, which is a left country. And you would think there would be some sort of, you know, close list between AMLO and Andrés Manuel López Obrador, the president of Mexico, and Biden. But weirdly enough, the right wing in, in Mexico has been pro-democrat or pro-democratic party for the last four years. And so th- that dynamic might be interesting to see. Um, so in terms of the second question was Juan Guaido, you know, it's going to be tough because I think in the past several months, you've seen various opposition figures, you know, uh, approach the Trump administration and talk about how they need to switch out Juan Guaido for somebody else because his time is done. If Joe Biden is going to continue with this kind of uh, uh, charade or this farce, of appointing or recognizing someone else as the president, someone other than Nicolás Maduro as the president of Venezuela, then I think that's how he's going to do it. I don't think he's necessarily going to go with Juan Guaidó, but I think he might go with another opposition figure. But again, there is a window of opportunity for improvement in the bilateral relationship because Venezuela is about to hold parliamentary elections uh, in December. And so You know, depending on what happens there, there's a chance that Biden just may say, you know what, let's stop this policy of, you know, recognizing a parallel government and let's see what we can do with Maduro.
0: Well, President Maduro has already said he's open to dialogue with the United States in response to the election we just witnessed here in the United States. No response from Washington yet. But how much, and you touched on this, But to get a little deeper into the issue of the upcoming elections, how much might a decision to drop Guaido have to do with his own political insecurity in Venezuela? He could very well lose his his seat in the National Assembly next month when the country votes in parliamentary elections. How might that vote impact U.S.-Venezuela policy?
1: Well, you know, the whole charade about Guai, though, is that he was the president of the National Assembly in January 2019. And he was basically, this was kind of a rotating presidency between the opposition parties, the opposition coalition that won the National Assembly in 2015. Lots of those parties are now divided internally. Some of them are not participating in the elections. They're calling him for a boycott. But there's a significant portion of the opposition that will participate. Uh, it, we'll have to see how the National Assembly turns out. But I think, it, it, you know, again, it might be a way out for Biden to ignore Guaido and say, look, you're not even in the National Assembly anymore. We're not going to recognize you. And he might take a page from Obama's playbook. And in that sense, in 2013, when uh, Maduro, right after Hugo Chavez died, Maduro ran for elections against a guy named Enrique Capriles. It was a much tighter, a closer race than anyone thought. And what the U.S. did immediately afterwards was not recognize Maduro. They didn't go to the extreme of, you know, saying, "Oh no, this other guy's the president," but they just refused to recognize the the electoral victory. It was kind of a a big deal for several months, and then very kind of slowly, it just disappeared from the news cycle because the basically the U.S. government, despite not having relations with Venezuela at the time, I mean, or they had they didn't have ambassadors, but there were still embassies. Uh, they basically just considered Venezuela or the Maduro government to be the de facto government, and still still had relations with them. Uh, You know, through there. I think that something similar is possible it might happen because, you know, appointing someone else from the opposition to be the so-called interim president will be extremely difficult because, A, you'll have to assume that someone from the opposition, or rather if the opposition as a whole is going to win the National Assembly, and I think that's, you know, very unlikely at this point. And also because the U.S. government or the Trump administration has gone to great lengths to delegitimize the opposition forces that are participating in these elections. So Biden would have to break with Trump to recognize one of the people running in these elections and or he would have to come up with a whole new fiction for why, you know, some other opposition leader is really the, the legitimate president of Venezuela. And I think, you know, it's going to be tough for him to jump through those hoops, uh, you know, in, in, you know, my uh, very optimistic, In the most optimistic scenario that I have is that Biden will just kind of de facto recognize the Maduro government. There won't be any relations. uh, Most of the sanctions will stay in place, but the most uh, egregious of the aggressions will cease, hopefully.
0: You mentioned Enrique Capriles, the former presidential candidate. He's among the figures in the opposition who've recently declared that, Juan Guaido's time is up. How divided is Venezuela's opposition currently as a result of the U.S. recognition of Guaido? What damage did that actually do to their cause at home?
1: Yeah, I mean, it did a lot of damage, but we also have to keep in mind that the opposition has been divided since, you know, Hugo Chavez first won elections in 1998. Right. And so they've been totally divided. It's a Big coalition that you know it includes everything from the extreme right, which is represented by Juan Guaido's party, to you know more moderates, including uh, a party called Democratic Action, which was the you know uh, the Venezuelan equivalent of the Democratic Party in Venezuela for about 40 years prior to Chavez. And you know what's happened in Venezuela is a really interesting dynamic. The extreme right has been successful, and I say that you know in quotes successful in terms of briefly capturing power in the 2002 coup. Since then, there's been a very marked shift to the right from all of these parties who after losing election after election have thought, you know what, maybe elections aren't the way to go and we have to, you know, try for either a coup or a military invasion or internal sabotage of the economy to such an extent that, you know, uh, the PSUV, which is President Maduro's political party, you lose the support. On that third point, they were sort of successful in 2015 because that's how they were able to take uh, back the National Assembly. But. And particularly since Juan Guaido was recognized by Trump uh, and and rather, not not since uh, he was recognized, but after his failure in April of, of his attempted coup, there has been a big split in the opposition. Many are now realizing that, you know what, the coup is not working. Calling for an invasion would be a disaster. And calling for sanctions is a big loser in Venezuela because most of the Venezuelan people, opposition and government supporters alike, now blame the sanctions or or see the sanctions as a huge factor in in Venezuela's economic downturn. So, you know, repeatedly betting on these sanctions to to kick the Venezuelan either government out or to, to, you know, uh, drum up popular support against the Venezuelan government is a political loser in the country. And so that's why we're seeing a big split in the opposition. Uh, We're also seeing a split between the Within parties themselves, between national leaders and regional leaders, regional leaders who want to, you know, take on regional issues related to their states, their cities, their communities, and national leaders who really see the only goal as being to get rid of the Maduro government. The regional leaders want to, they, they want to engage in dialogue, they want to negotiate, they want to participate in elections, and so we we've seen that split, and we've seen some regional le- leaders take over the the leadership of of certain opposition parties. Uh, But, you know, at this point, Juan Guaido is so completely discredited in Venezuela, he's become a kind of a joke and nobody takes him seriously and nobody and fewer and fewer people are taking uh, the opposition led by Guaido, that faction of the opposition, seriously. It's going to be really interesting to see what happens in the December 6th elections, the parliamentary elections in Venezuela. The main thing I'm going to be looking for, apart from, of course, the breakdown of which party won, is to see the turnout, right? Uh, If it's Anything anything over 8 million votes, 8 million is roughly the number of people who voted in the 2018 presidential elections. If it's over 8 million votes, that's a very clear sign that the Venezuelan people have rejected the path of coups and sanctions and potential invasions and that they are embracing dialogue and democracy.
0: Well, finally, Leo, how is the United States working to undermine that upcoming vote in the event that Venezuelans do deliver this resounding mandate to... Maduro and his party.
1: I mean, I spoke a little bit about it earlier in 2013, how the US failed to recognize Maduro's victory then, right? And so when we talk about US electoral interference in Venezuela, particularly in the last four years, we have to go back to the summer of 2017, when Venezuela had elections for the National Constituent Assembly. It was immediately denounced, when, when those elections were announced, it was denounced by the US government and it led to an opposition boycott of those elections which really would have been a, an incredibly you know, powerful way forward for the country to break free of the political stalemate that it has lived in over the past seven years. But they decided to boycott those elections. Instead, they had their own kind of uh, nine b- non-binding referendum that wasn't overseen by any sort of electoral authority. And they pretended like they got millions and millions of people out to vote for that non-binding referendum. Later on that year, there were elections for the Venezuela's governors. There were gubernatorial elections. The opposition participated fully, and they kind of framed those elections as a referendum on Maduro. They said, if we win the majority of, of the states, it's clear that the Venezuelan people are on our side, and therefore Maduro should resign. What happened was the complete opposite. The PSUV, Maduro's party, swept those elections. They had 24 states, and suddenly all that talk about a, a referendum on Maduro, like, it went away, and nobody in the opposition really recognized the fact that, you know, their strategy had gone awry. Uh, then there was a third electoral, uh, uh, there was third elections in, in, in 2017, which are municipal elections at a national level. Again, the U.S. denounced them and said they were going to be fraudulent. This time, the opposition conduct, conducted a partial boycott because having just gone through the gubernatorial elections, they knew they were about to get swept again. To late twenty seven er, 2017, early 2018, there were negotiations between the government and opposition. These were undermined entirely by the Trump administration. Just as there was a huge landmark g- agreement about to be signed, at least the the US government basically said, we're not gonna recognize this uh, you know, agreement and we're not gonna recognize the forthcoming uh, presidential elections. They said that in January 2018, the presidential elections hadn't even been set. They were eventually carried out in May of 2018 at that point, the US was saying, we're not recognizing it no matter who wins. So you had opposition leaders say, well, I'm not going to run if the US isn't going to recognize me. And so the opposition then boycotted those elections Elections partially. The same thing, the same scenario is playing out again with these parliamentary elections. The US has been trying to delegitimize them for months. They've already said they're going to be fraudulent. Obviously, they haven't even taken place. There's no way there could have been fraud already. And, and Venezuela's electoral system is actually really strong. So the possibilities of fraud are, you know, minute. Uh, but what we're, we're going to see is if, you know, the opposition, which is super splintered, we're going we're to uh, have to take a good close look at the opposition turnout in these elections to see if this U.S. strategy of delegitimizing the elections will be successful or not.
0: The gray zone will be covering those elections. And I know you will be as well, Leo. Where can viewers follow your work? Where can viewers follow your work?
1: You can follow me by going to codepink.org and also by following me on Twitter at, at Leonardo EFA.
0: Leo's one of the sharpest minds out there on Venezuela, so I suggest everyone give him a follow. Leo Flores, thanks so much.
1: Thank you, Anya.